0: Thank you, David, and the team. Shall we all pray together? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. While we were yet sinners, you humbled yourself, you emptied yourself, and chose to come down to the earth and become like one of us. And your humility has become our salvation. Lord, therefore, we ask that you will also make us humbled this morning, humbled before your presence and humbled before your word. You know, there may be so many things in our minds and thoughts, worries and concerns about life, plans and dreams, but in this hour, help us to see who is greater than all. In your name we pray, amen. The passage that we'll be looking at this morning is the, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. This passage has been often called Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem, Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem, as the story depicts the beginning of His final week of, in life, uh, week of life on earth, namely the beginning of His Passion Week in the city of Jerusalem. So this passage has been one of the favorite and the most read passages on Palm Sundays, a very last Sunday before the Easter's every year. But as I was studying and meditating on this passage, I came to this realization that this must be a Christmas Sunday passage like on today. Even the evangelist Luke, the physician, is linking this story to his earlier Christmas narratives by using the same phrase echoed in both passages, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In the earlier story, the phrase was sung by the great company of the heavenly host with an angel before the shepherds who came to celebrate the coming of the infant King Jesus in the town of Bethlehem. And now in Luke chapter 19, The disciples in the crowd celebrate the coming of the Messiah to the great city of Jerusalem, singing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Just like 2,000 years ago, we are also today celebrating and singing, Born is the King of Israel, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 2,000 years ago, when these songs were sung, how did Jesus respond to them? And 2,000 years later today, when we sing these praises, how is Jesus going to respond to our praises in this season? Do you dare to listen to what he says? So reading from Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 onwards, After Jesus has said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people sprayed their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus of Nazareth is now unlike how he had been acting until yesterday. From this moment that Jesus is about to enter the city of Jerusalem, He is no more like the person that His disciples knew until the very day before. And what He is about to do on this day is the most deliberately orchestrated and planned act than everything that He had done before. Everything that He does on this day except just one. He does them deliberately. So up to this point, he has been very cautious about exposing his identity to the public. When Jesus drove out demons, he did not let the demons speak about his divine identity, but silenced them. When he healed a man who had been suffering from hearing and speaking disabilities for a long time, he commanded to the crowd not to tell anyone about this miraculous healing and recovery. When more and more crowds were coming to Jesus and his popularities were going up, he chose to withdraw himself from the crowd and went to desolated places. So, up to this point, Jesus of Nazareth has been very cautious about exposing his messianic identity to the public. But on this day, He's different than before. The first verse of the passage states that He went on ahead. Verse 29, ahead of His disciples. He's being very proactive and very much leading on this day on His way to Jerusalem. It is the first time in the Gospels that Jesus went ahead of disciples. The word ahead appears in the Gospels only when there is a special message to be delivered ahead. For example, John the Baptist was sent ahead of Jesus to deliver a message and prepare the way of the Lord. As we're saying, the stars on the sky went ahead of the Magi in order to deliver the message of the good news that the King is coming. Jesus sent out his disciples to multiple villages, two by two, ahead of himself in order to deliver the message of the gospel. And this time, Jesus is now going ahead. And it's because he has a message. He has a public statement to make. What is the public statement that Jesus is going to make? Verses 30 and onwards. Go to the village ahead of you. Here's another emphasis, ahead. And as you enter it, you'll find a colt, a donkey tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead, here's another one, went and found it just as he has told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus. The way that Jesus is making His public statement is through His actions, namely untying and riding on a donkey. You must have noticed how many times the same word was repeated in these verses, Untie it five times. You'll find a donkey tied there. Untie it. Someone will ask, why are you untying it? So when they were untying the donkey, the owners ask, why are you untying it? You see? Luke, the evangelist, is deliberately emphasizing the word in his storytelling in order to refer to a text in Genesis. In Genesis 49, Jacob, the father of Israel, blesses each of his sons before he passes away, and when he blesses his number four son, Judah, Jacob prophesies, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he, the Shiloh in Hebrew word, meaning the Messiah, the King of Peace, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So there's a messianic prophecy from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in the line of Judah. And then Jacob says, He, the Messiah, will tie his donkey to a vine and his colt to the choicest branch. What is this? Tying and untying a donkey is a messianic sign. What is the statement that Jesus is making through his actions here? I am the Messiah. I am the long-awaited king and savior as prophesied from Genesis. So Jesus of Nazareth is now unlike how he had been acting until the day before. Now it's all public. No more holding back. The time has come. He's deliberately making an open public declaration, I am the Messiah. Alongside the Genesis passage, there are two more significant Old Testament passages that this deliberately orchestrated action of Jesus is alluding to. One is from 1 Kings chapter 1. It is when King David was old and about to pass away and Adonijah Uh, who was one of King David's many sons, was self-claiming to be the heir and successor to his father, King David. You know the story. A fake king, a self-claiming king, a fake kingdom was established. And many people were coming around him saying, Long live King Adonijah! And it is in this very context that King David called Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, and asked them to deliberately do an act. It's to have, it's having Solomon mount on David's mule, David's uh, donkey, and bringing him to Gihon, where he will be anointed as the only and as the only true legitimate king of Judah. So when Jesus was riding on a donkey, He is claiming that He is the true, only, legitimate king, a line of David. His royal credentials are authentic. There are kings of the world and lords of the lords who are self-claiming to be the kings and powers. And of course, there are people around them saying, long live the king, as if they were to give them peace and prosperity. But nevertheless, this Jesus on a donkey is the true king of the world. And the other passage that is alluded to is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 to 10. Zechariah, a minor prophet, prophesied that one day God will send a shepherd king to Jerusalem and he will be a humble king, a humble king riding on a donkey. And he will proclaim peace, the shalom, to the nations. An humble king of shalom. When kings rode a horse, they were riding from or to wars and battles. When kings rode a donkey, they were riding to peace. And this Jesus of Nazareth is riding on a donkey. And he's coming to restore the peace, the shalom of God unto the lives and unto the world. Jesus is deliberately making an open public declaration here that he is the long-waited Messiah, the only authentic king over the kings of the world, a humble king who is coming for peace. All the disciples knew what Jesus was doing exactly. It was no more a secret nor a trick that needs to be unpacked. Even the owners of the donkey, who were completely strangers, immediately understood what untying a donkey near Jerusalem meant. So they gave away. Nowhere in the Gospel of Luke thus far, Jesus called himself the Lord, Curious he used the phrase only to refer to God the Father. But here on this day, he's calling himself equal to God the Father as he claims the Lord needs it. So at the coronation procession of the Messiah, the disciples became excited, throwing their clothes onto the donkey and tree branches on the road to Jerusalem. Jerusalem shouting in loud voices, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The king has come. He has come. He has come. The Messiah has come. The Mount of Olives was filled with joy, praises, expectations, cheers, and shouts. They couldn't help but sing because of the overflowing joy and the hope that this Messiah will bring. And it is at this very moment that the one unorchestrated thing happens. It is in the midst of these shoutings and praises and joys that this Messiah does something that was totally unexpected. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over it. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city of Jerusalem, Jesus wept over it. Jesus saw the city and wept. He cried. Just a few moments ago, he deliberately made the, the open public statement, declaration that he is the Messiah. But what a strange development of the story. This Messiah weaves. Looking at Jerusalem, what does the name of the city stand for? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of Shalom, the city of peace. Looking at this city of peace and shalom, the Messiah weeps. You know, there's a couple of texts in the gospel narratives in which Jesus wept. One famous one is from John 11, where Jesus wept at the death of His friend Lazarus. As Mary and Martha were crying, um, Jesus wept together because of their brother's unfortunate death. But here, the word that Luke uses is a much more stronger word. It's a different word that Luke uses than the word that John used. At the death of Lazarus, Jesus wept, meaning he, he shed tears. I mean, he was sad, so he wept. But here, if you are imagining a scene like this, as depicted in the painting, that is not what Luke is describing he's not talking about a few drops of gentle tears rolling down his cheeks. The word Luke uses is klaio, which means to sob, to wail. It's much more intense and a much more emotional word. It describes the kind of sobbing that shakes your body and brings in a chest pain, a gut-twisting pain and sorrow which makes you shrunk, shrunk down. It's a deep, deep agony that Jesus is experiencing as He is looking at this city of Shalom. He's sobbing and wailing. These are the ironic pictures that Luke is contrasting. Cheers of the crowd, but the tears of Jesus shouting of joy from the crowd, but shouting in agony at the coronation procession of the Messiah. Why? Why is Jesus wailing on this good day? Why does He have to wail even more intensely than the death of His friend Lazarus? It's because something worse then death is happening. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you real peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus wailed because they were not able to see. The city of Shalom was not able to see. Jesus wailed because they did not understand what would really bring them real peace and shalom. Jesus wailed because they became still blinded by the false promises of the secular empire that this glorious Roman empire might give them peace and prosperity in the name of Pax Romana. He knows that in a few days, this city will choose Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, over Pax Christi. He knows that this city of peace is going to reject this king of peace. He knows that within days, the echoes of Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest, will be drawn out by crucify him, crucify him. He knows that the chant, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, will give way to, we have no king but Caesar. He knows that the people's expectations about the Messiah are very much different from the one that He is going to be and show. If you had only known on this day what would bring you real peace and shalom. Let us pause for a second and reflect on these words of Jesus ourselves. What about yourself? If you had only known on this day what would bring us real shalom. What is your understanding and expectation about peace and a way to it? What is a peaceful life? What is your understanding and expectation about a good life, a peaceful life, a well-lived life, an abundant life? And how are you going to get there? How are you trying to get there What do you need more from today in order to get there? What is your destination like? In other words, what does peace really mean to you? Just like those disciples and crowds on the Mount of Olives, on Christmas Day, we celebrate the coming of the King, the Messiah. And we sing the same song that they sang, Born is the newborn king. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. While we sing them, perhaps we must ask ourselves, what is my my expectation for the Messiah? What am I cheering for? And why am I excited, if at all? What am I celebrating? What are we actually asking Him to come and do in our life and in the world? What kind of peace and shalom am I expecting Him to fulfill and establish? What is interesting about this passage is that when the disciples shouted in joyful praises, as usual, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and made complaints. A strange reaction in the neighborhood is observed. As the disciples were shouting for joy, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But isn't this strange? Why on earth are they making complaints about rejoicing for the Messiah? Ironically, the Pharisees' reactions tell us about what the disciples' expectations for the Messiah were. The Pharisees saw these chants of the disciples as highly political and highly materialistic. That is why they are asking Jesus to stop them immediately. The Pharisees were actually correct in their observation of what is being sung in the crowds. When the disciples and the crowds were saying, Rejoice! The king is here! What they actually meant was a political freedom and materialistic restoration. Hail to the Messiah! It is now that God the Father will vindicate the honor of Israel from the oppressions of the Romans. This Messiah will deliver us from this empire. No more sufferings, no more oppressions. He will restore the kingdom of Judah, my kingdom, our kingdom. If these sufferings and oppressions are removed, we will be at peace, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What were the disciples cheering for? Fulfillment of their desires. Fulfillment of their definition of peace. Fulfillment of their ways to bring about peace. It's the freedom from the Romans. It's the complete removal of sufferings and oppressions and hardships from our lives so that they will be at peace. What they wanted is a miracle, a miraculous Savior who will defeat the Romans. So the evangelist Luke does not forget to explain the very reason At the end of their joyful shouting, the whole crowd of Jesus, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices because of all the miracles they had seen. They just want another one according to their desires. And the Pharisees are just afraid of any chance that Roman soldiers would hear these chants. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. We are afraid. We are afraid that the Romans would hear this. We don't want to make those great warriors any angry. You see, the Pharisees are saying these in front of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So the King of Peace wails. Because even in the midst of all the celebrations of the Messiah, no one seems to understand the true significance of the coming of the Messiah. Today's story is often known as Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem. Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem. However, by carefully looking at the story, we know by now that it is actually a message that rejects the messianic triumphalism. The The Messiah is not a Santa Claus who is going to fulfill all my desires and wishes. If that has been my expectations about the Messiah, and if this is why I am singing, Hail to the newborn king, the Messiah was born. Sorry, but I will be disappointed at the Messiah at some point. The Messiah came to Israel, but she is still remained under the Roman oppression. If my expectation about the Messiah was that He would remove all my sufferings, all my hardships from my life, so that I'll be at peace at last, sorry, I would probably be disappointed at the Messiah at some point of my life. The true Messiah, the long awaited One, knows that those fulfillments of wishes, a removal of sufferings, will not be able to satisfy us and bring us real peace. More we have, even more we'll be wishing to have. It is He who knows what would bring us true peace, and that is to know and to stand on His steadfast love for you. It is to know and to stand on the steadfast love of God for us. His steadfast love for the world, which will bring us the true peace. That is the profound foundation of any creature's shalom. He so loved the world that He came to the earth. He so loved you that he emptied himself and became the humble king. And this humble king says that the cross is his throne. The kingdom throne is on the cross. He knows that the cross is the only way to the true peace and shalom. He knows that in his incarnation, in his crucifixion, He's demonstrating the full extent of love of God the Father. He's saying to the crowd and the disciples, Behold, behold your king who takes away the sin of the world. Don't just think about what gifts I'll bring to you to make you happier. But look, behold your king who's humbling himself down to the earth who's humbling himself riding on a donkey, who's humbling himself being crucified and killed at the cross. Behold, this king, look at me. I am your king, and this is who I am to you, and this is who I will be to you forever. Knowing this love, knowing this love, and walking in the ways of his love, Is the way to true shalom. Please remember just two things as we close this morning's message. One, you are loved. You are loved. You are deeply, deeply, deeply loved. No matter how you feel about yourself, no matter how satisfied you are, With your life, you are deeply, deeply loved. The triune God who created the heavens and the earth loves you so much that He emptied Himself, became like one of us, and rode on a donkey and died on the cross on your behalf. He's your Messiah, not necessarily because He's going to give you more gifts and fulfill your wishes and dreams, like Santa Claus mythology. But because He loves you so much and He's going to hold your hands tight no matter what you go through in your life, you are deeply, deeply, deeply loved. That is the gospel. That is the foundation of our peace. Let the love of God truly be the foundation of your peace. And two, Don't forget to live out the spirit of Christmas. Don't forget to live out the spirit of Christmas. Jesus Christ is not just a superhero who saves the world, but a master to follow after. His love as revealed in His incarnation and crucifixion and riding of a donkey is not just something that we'll be commemorating and celebrating, but is a way of life to follow. As disciples and beloved people of God, we are called to follow the incarnational life of our Master. Celebrate the good news that He came for love, but also Don't forget to live out the spirit of Christmas in this season. Meaning, choose humility, choose love, choose sacrifice, choose to serve, choose to give one more chance. I know that we may fail every day, and I'm speaking to myself too. Even so, let us try just one more time. Choose humility, choose love and choose sacrifice because the Emmanuel is with you and will lead you to shalom. So we have a choice between two images of the Messiah. One is riding on a Rudolph. (laughs) He's going to fulfill all our wishes and dreams so that we may be happier and perhaps be at peace, hopefully. But the other Messiah is riding on a donkey. And He's, he's going to lay His life for you onto the cross so that we know how much He loves us. Which one is truly your Messiah that you are expecting? Where does your peace come from? Which way would you choose to follow? Will you choose to join the whole creation's singing of His love? If we keep quiet, the stones will cry out.